0: Thank you for joining us again on the Methodist Voice podcast. Welcome. My name is Kendall. In case you didn't know, I'm the guy doing all of the talking. The title of today's episode is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the temptation of being like God. So we're back together this week, continuing to dig through Genesis chapter three. This is a huge chapter because... It will set the stage for the rest of redemptive history. That's the rest of the Bible. Well, we're still living in that right now, technically. So a lot to cover here. This will take multiple episodes to get all the way through. But let's dive right in. So we're going to start again in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we discussed that character last week. We're going to talk about the other characters and the situation this week. Again, second half of verse one. He said to the woman, the serpent, that is, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing both good and evil. In other words, You'll unlock a knowledge that leads to evil, self-will. Self-will outside of God's will always leads to evil. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we covered the serpent character last week. We're going to focus on some key issues related to human beings from this passage this week. And so some of the questions we're going to seek to address. Number one, what does the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represent why that tree what did it mean we will surely die etc cetera, etc cetera. question number 2 if god created human beings very good why did they fall if a good and loving and perfect and all-powerful god created something why did it fail in the end it's a valid question number 3 what is meant by death Adam and Eve did not cease to exist once they would eaten of the tree. So in what sense did they experience death? And then lastly, why is being like God described as the temptation to eat the forbidden fruit? What is so tempting about that for human beings? So those are some of the questions we're going to try and address in this episode. And of course, those are major questions. You can never do questions like that, Justice, but we're going to start with the first question. What does the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represent? What is it? What does it mean? And so the easiest answer is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents a choice. Human beings have been granted free will by God. And so, yes, God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. He does, he's not accountable to anyone for his decisions. Yes, God is sovereign. And as such, yes, God can grant other beings free will. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Only to a simpleton does one necessarily cancel out the other. God can be both sovereign and allow other beings freedom of will at the same time. That isn't a problem. So the tree represents the option for human beings of sticking to God's plan for their development and the earth's development towards their intended aptitude, which is ruling the earth for human beings, or the other option to go their own way and do their own thing. The tree is not a test of obedience per se. God isn't testing them to see whether or not they'll remain faithful. He's just giving them the option of not following his will for them. In other words, they're not being held captive against their will. They're not in some prison they can't get out of. So it's just a choice. Human beings are allowed to partner with God in what he wants to do for the earth where they cannot partner with God and they can suffer the consequences. So that's all there is to it. And so for the next question, we're going to rely heavily on the thinking of an early church father named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a disciple of a man named Polycarp and Polycarp was a disciple of John the apostle himself. So this would be someone who is very close to the original and maybe even the favorite apostle of Jesus, John the Apostle. So the thinking of Irenaeus was very important to the formation of the early church and how they understood scripture. He was an important person. It was from his perspective that while original humans were innocent and pure, they were also childlike and untested or unwise. The text nowhere describes them or any other part of creation as being perfect in the sense that God is perfect. Original humans had an unbroken relationship with God by which they could grow up into their original mandate to rule the earth, to have dominion. But they were as yet developmentally incapable of carrying that mandate to the extent that God wanted them to. So thus the need for a guardian to assist them in their growth towards their potential of being God's representatives on the earth or the rulers of the earth. This might shed some light on other scripture, for instance, where Jesus gave his followers advice to be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. Jesus wants to reclaim the original status and place of human beings of being harmless or innocent before God. But he also wants us to become as wise as serpents, no longer capable of being deceived by other beings. So God's objective for humans is to become both fully developed or wise, but also innocent and pure at the same time. Jesus Christ makes that capable. Jesus Christ is the living demonstration of what the image of God, being God's representative on the earth, is supposed to look like. He is the healed, restored, fully formed image of God that we discussed in episode 8. Jesus being the second Adam. He's described as the second Adam in the New Testament. the, The template for a fully mature and wise, yet innocent and pure human being so Irenaeus posits that it was the ability to grow and develop into fully mature beings that's what was short-circuited specifically in the garden that's what the fall entails losing the ability to grow into the fullness of what god intended us to be which it once again is rulers of the earth so the entire image of God was not destroyed in humans at the fall. What we specifically lose is the ability of God to become what he intended us to become. We become stalled out in our development and even able to, unable to uh, keep it from being destroyed. That's only God's grace that accomplishes that. We don't even have the ability to do that. God does that on his own 100% keeping the image of God from being fully destroyed in humans. So it was death in the sense uh, being described here, it refers to a loss of access to the tree of life. And the tree of life represents access to or participation in the uncreated light or energies of God. That is God's power to become what God wants us to become so that we can do what God wants us to do. And so here's uh, what that particular energy functions to do in us right now. I'm going to read to you from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, struggle to become your God-appointed self. Enter the struggle to become. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good, good pleasure. So there is the power of God that is available to believers to will and to work according to God's good pleasure. This is what Adam and Eve lost. And when they lost that, they lost the ability to become their God-appointed selves. So they were lost in wandering, in other words. So the difference between us and Adam and Eve, us is who the New Testament refers to in Philippians 2, is that we have to struggle with sin and fallenness, both in ourselves and in the world, in our flesh, in order to receive the ultimate objective of our own salvation. Again, becoming fully mature people who are able to claim the God-appointed role God wants us to claim, on the earth while Adam and Eve did not have to wrestle that particular match with fallenness they did have to wait to receive the same objective becoming made fully mature they didn't get they weren't granted that automatically they had to grow into it and that was the temptation That they faced the temptation to take hold of what God intended for them all along without having to wait for it. They perceived a shortcut to becoming fully mature. Now, there is a similar story of that same strategy by the enemy being played out against humanity by the serpent character we are going to refer to as Satan or the devil. In this passage, but it's in the de- life and development of Jesus himself. So this is from Matthew chapter four, verse one, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now Jesus is being called out to be tempted. Verse two, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and have him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, this in this scenario, it's the exact same scene we have in the garden, where Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan. Okay, Jesus is led to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Satan tempts Adam and Eve with their God-appointed destiny. It is what God had promised them already to become rulers of the earth, his representatives like God on the earth. Satan does the exact same thing with Jesus. Satan presents Jesus, his God-appointed, God-ordained destiny, which would be ruling all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. It says that explicitly in the text, in Psalm Chapter two, verse seven, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations, your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possession. So that was already a promise to Jesus. What Satan is doing is offering Jesus his destiny without having to take the narrow road of suffering and the cross. Same thing with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, here's a shortcut to your destiny. Jesus, here's a shortcut to your destiny. It's the same temptation for both. So here you see Satan is simply tempting Jesus with what God already intended to grant him anyway. The particular temptation was to take the easy road to his destiny rather than the hard road. The road that takes time and effort. To take a shortcut. Again, bypassing the necessary suffering of the cross. But that leads us to the logical conclusion that the temptation of Adam and Eve to become like God is their actual destiny. That it's a real temptation. And that's exactly what we're saying. Now we learn from episode number eight that being the image of God means being his physical representatives on the earth. We look like God, we act like God, we make decisions like God, etc. We are to be like God. Just like kids are to be like their parents. And we are God's kids. We're his earthly family. So that isn't a stretch. But the early church fathers took this idea of being like God a little more seriously, a little further. It was a concept referred to as theosis. That's a central concept in like the Eastern Orthodox Church, in their theology of salvation, the the idea of theosis. The emphasis isn't what I'm saved from. The emphasis is what I'm saved for. I am saved for the opportunity and the privilege of being transformed into the image and likeness of God, I'm being transformed into a being that is like God, and so for them, uh, God's plans way bigger than what I'm saved from, and what I'm saved for is way bigger. Once again, than what most people perceive, salvation is about. Ultimately, transcending our fallen humanity and at the resurrection from the dead, becoming or receiving the original mandate of God for humans to be transformed into his physical representatives all over the earth where we will rule and reign as his representatives. I'm going to read to you from... Thomas Oden's book, Life in the Spirit. This is a classic volume where he compiles the best thinking of the early church and tells you what they thought about a topic. And so I'm going to read on the topic of theosis from Oden's book, Life in the Spirit, page 208. Here's what he says. Through Christ's glory and goodness, and here's a quote, He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. Or in other words, share in the life of God in Christ through the spirit and escape the corruption that is in the world. And so that is uh, from second Peter chapter one, verse four. And then a lot of the uh, opinions attached to that are cited to early church fathers. So carrying on with Odin here. In new birth, the regenerate shares in the nature of the spiritual progenitor. In other words, the one who is the one who produced the regeneration. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. 1 John 3, 9. So then, just as you received Christ as Lord, continued to live in him, rooted and built up in him. Colossians 2, 7. Athanasius, an early church father, stated that the principle in an influential formula, he was made man, speaking of Christ, that we might be made God. He was not, therefore, first man and then God, but first God and then man, in order that he might rather deify us, welcoming us into himself. Again, that's from Athanasius. Here's a quote from Basil, one of the early church fathers. Being made like to God is a consuming work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in us by himself, truly sanctifying us and joining us to himself. Remember, Jesus prays in the garden in John 17 that we might be one just as he and the Father are one, that we might be all be one uh, together uh, in Jesus Christ. And in this and by this coalescence and union of ourselves with him, he makes of us sharers in the divine nature, beautifying human nature with the splendor of divinity. That's Cyril of Alexandria. God offers himself to the creature in such an intimate way that the creature is raised up to and transfigured by divine grace, John of Damascus. Here it may be celebrated that now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Hence, the ancient exegetes spoke of a henosis, or union, of the Holy Spirit with the soul. And that functioned as an energy source by which we are transformed. It's God's ability working in us to make us into something that ultimately will be resurrected and transformed into something that, supersedes the humanity that we experience right now so we will become like god in the sense we will become something that transcends humans even a being that is capable of standing in judgment of the angels it says in the text of scripture so there are many layers of reality to that temptation adam and eve originally didn't receive from God all of the qualities he wanted them to have in order to function in the role that he intended them to function. They had to develop those abilities through waiting and patience. God would develop or impart those over time. And so what Satan did was tempt them with something that was their destiny, which is a very compelling temptation to become To have it all now, right? To have it developed the easy way, to not have to wait for it. That's the temptation. And that was what the serpent character was manipulating in Adam and Eve. Was that desire to become that which God had already ordained they become without having to wait on it in God's time, in God's ways. And then what Satan wanted, Satan wanted to dislocate human beings from their relationship with God that way he could hijack their minds and hearts with his own agenda there's a satanic agenda and there is a divine agenda and they're in competition with one another and this is where the competition starts so we will flesh that out again in the coming weeks talk more in depth about that but for now that paints a little bit of a picture as to what might have been going on here. Again, all of this is supported by some of the best thinking in the early church. Satan got jealous. He thought God's plan to hand the this beautiful earth over to these human beings who were not yet capable of doing that was a bad plan. Satan decided he would hijack the plan so that he could take over leadership of the reins of the earth and He also wanted to be directing the minds and hearts of human beings. And so he was able to accomplish that in this little conspiracy or coup against God. Uh, And God is going to set the stage for that conflict that's going to play out really until Jesus returns. So thanks for joining us today. I hope that helps shed some new light on these verses for you. And we'll continue working on it together next week. Be blessed. Bye-bye.